Welcome back to Presidential Podcast. We are back to Jackson, and we're more excited than ever. Um, the We're into his first term now, and we discovered discussed the Petticoat Affair, which was kind of a blessing in disguise, I would say, because he was able to replace his cabinet, which put in the spoil system. Uh, where do you want to go from here with talking about Jay, the more substantial So let's... Parts? let's uh talk a bit about the one of the big issues of Jackson's first term, which was uh, uh, an issue stemming from the continuing need for governmental revenue. Uh, back then, the government raised money either by selling land, as they had the title and deed, whatever, of extensive western lands, mm -hmm. which uh, we annexed from the American Indian tribes, or more often uh, they uh, received revenue from uh, goods imported into the United States with, with uh, tariffs. And the... Uh, How much revenue were they getting from the IRS? I don't think we had an IRS back then. Did they have sales tax? Service. No. So there's no sales tax. No, there was there were there were no taxes other income than income tax. No, no income Property tax didn't tax. come until 1913 when they uh, had uh, a constitutional amendment. Uh, there probably was some kind of ad valorem tax on improvements for land. Mm -hmm. uh, that is, you ad valorem means to the value of. Mm -hmm. So, as you cultivated land or brought it into cultivation or put up buildings or houses, there might have been some control of the actual physical cotton. Were, were New Yorkers, even though they had the cotton trade futures market in New York and the financing of the cotton trade there? They were still anti-slavery, knowing that the that the South needed the slaves to produce the cotton. It was a it was a very tricky uh, New York was the last of the northern states to outlaw slavery because and of that. You think probably more that than anything, uh, and there was also a very large immigrant population in New York City, probably also along the Erie Canal and in the big cities, Syracuse, Rochester, uh, Utica, Buffalo, and so on that grew up along the Erie Canal. Immigrants who really were opposed to any kind of elevation of the blacks because they were in direct competition with them for jobs and for social status for residential space. Who, what immigrants? Irish and Mostly Jews? the Irish. Okay. Mostly the Irish. Not, there hadn't been a lot of Jewish um, immigration. At there. this point, there's still... The Irish the big Irish immigration wasn't to come until well after Jackson's term. Right. Uh, well, even as it post-Lincoln's term. No, it was in the 18, late 1840s, 1850s. Oh, okay. And then the German immigration comes but, in. But the Germans were a big immigrant group. And they were they were tolerant of the blacks, but they really and, and they were probably abolitionists, but they believed that the blacks should be resettled, like the you Indians know, were like, to be resettled. 
Yeah, but the blacks were supposed to like go to Liberia or back to Africa. Yeah, or you know Cuba or someplace. I mean, they weren't supposed to stay in Oklahoma. Okay. Um, but in any case, uh, the Western farmers, the core of Jackson's support, and by Western, I mean from say like um, Pittsburgh West. Mm-hmm. All right, and, and I had to hesitate there a little bit to think of a city that readers would be familiar with. Pittsburgh, um, Cincinnati, Nashville kind of formed a line. Everything in the southeast, Alabama, uh, Mississippi, Florida Panhandle was all new territory, basically unsettled by white people. Um the Midwest, and in this case, I'm thinking of the area between the Ohio River, north of the Ohio River, south of the Great Lakes, was essentially unsettled by white people. There were a lot of Indians there. The tribes were strong. Indians were numerous. This was where? Uh, between the Mississippi and the Allegheny Mountains. The Allegheny is on the edge of Pennsylvania, uh, yeah. Pittsburgh. Appalachian Mountains. Okay. So, and, you know, we fought pitched battles against the Indians, and and, and defeated them in, in I mean, the world. I mean, it seems like a difficult part of the country to cultivate south of Ohio there because of the mount, the terrain. Well, it's flat. There's there's an inland... I mean, the Appalachian Mountain region is a well, difficult Well, once place. they get over it. Oh, okay. Okay. And uh, this was where basically the uh, Americans wanted to expand to. They wanted to live there. The birth rate was was just phenomenal. Americans wanted to live there. Yeah, the, the, in Indiana and Ohio yeah. and Alabama, Iowa. And Mississippi, Iowa, no, Iowa. Well, Iowa wasn't. Iowa was Settled, still yeah. beyond us. Okay. Um, but the birth rate was phenomenal. The immigration rate was not terribly high. Uh, People were still pretty much afraid to come from Europe. I mean, the Europeans that we got were not. Uh, until, the, until the 1840s, they weren't urban people. We didn't get massive numbers of them, uh, especially in comparison to the population. With the, the, the birth rate so high, our burgeoning population kept the percentage of immigrants fairly low. And we would see... Uh, a couple decades later, the rise of the American Native Party, the Know Nothings, in response to the first big wave of immigration. From the Ireland. Know Nothings were the first nativist party in the country? The first organized nativist party. So go back to what you were saying about New York and Philadelphia. But let me go back to Jackson's time. Okay. So the uh, the mercantile interests wanted a lot of trade. Uh for the most part... The more trade, the more money they make. Right. They didn't care. They just wanted to carry the goods. The uh, the Southerners, the, the plantation owners who at this time had just taken over Alabama and Mississippi, so they had vast new territories to expand into, wanted a lot of trade. They didn't want high, high prices. They didn't want tariffs. But the northern industrialists, and, and particularly the people who like Adams, wanted to see manufacturing grow up in the United States. Mm-hmm. They wanted to see the United States making its own shoes, its own nails, its own cabinetry, its own furniture, uh, its own 
class, you know, any, any item that you think of, most of which at that time was still being imported for Europe. They wanted to start making it here. And there was a pretty uh, cohesive and powerful group of Americans around Clay, uh, Jackson's big rival, who wanted to see this happen. So the tariff would protect this industry. So it, it was a way of protecting clay. Mm-hmm. But it went against Jackson's roots. Yeoman Farmer. Yeoman Farmer, who might or might not have, I mean, he might have, have gone either way because he could say, okay, you know, as long as I can get nails at a reasonable price, I don't care if they're American or British. I'll go for what's cheap. Uh, but it, it hurt the people who Calhoun backed and who Adams backed. Who it hurt who? the mercantile people who wanted to ship the goods, and it hurt the. I big thought you people. said Adams people wanted to do the. Um, they were. They wanted to ship goods. They didn't want tariffs. They, they didn't want. They didn't want anything that they was going to reduce the volume. They didn't want manufacturing. They could care about manufacturing. They what? They could care. I mean, they just. Didn't. But if there's manufacturing here, but oh, if they there's manufacturing here, there'd be less to ship. Okay. You know, then it would go to railroads or some other, some other. So they didn't want manufacturing. So they probably liked it better if the manufacturing was in Europe. So who was in favor of the manufacturing? So basically, uh, people who wanted to see American industry grow up. So, but you would think that Jackson would have some level on that because he wanted to see America mature. Well, Jackson wanted revenue for the national government. For the national government, I mean, he was he was big on that. He. Uh, is the only president to have paid off the national debt. Clinton came so, close. Uh, Clinton's plan, had they followed it, it wouldn't have been until 2011. Okay. So he didn't come close. All right. Uh, Jackson was the only one who ever did it, and he was he was he was big on that. He was you know. Did Jefferson come close? Call a physical conservative. Um, I think uh, Jefferson. Pretty much blew it up because remember he Louisiana. bought the Louisiana Purchase. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got the money back to an extent from selling that land. But in any case, uh, Jackson pushed the tariff. Calhoun hated it. So there was a big Calhoun split. Calhoun was his VP. Right. Big split. Uh, Van a Buren, powerful a powerful VP? Yes. Because the VP early on wasn't that powerful. It was Most of the office time. doesn't have that much power, but Calhoun was a, a political titan. Okay, and where was he from? South Carolina. He was a cotton baron. I, he, I, they were. He was from a planter family, but I don't think they would be in the baron class. You know, they were poorer. You know, he he lived more. He was uh, farther east, where the plantations weren't quite so big. Okay, uh, but he represented the south. The, tr- the the planters planters south yes okay and Van Buren the Secretary of State was from New York from uh, Kinderhook New York which is in the Catskills okay and he was one of the ones who wanted to see industry grow because he liked banks he liked bankers he liked uh, manufacturing what was his political bent was he a a big government type he was he was a free soiler he was an abolitionist. Uh, Off of morality or what? Uh, with with the name Van Buren, he's Dutch, Dutch descent. Yeah. Was he one of the early Calvinistic, families that mm-hmm. uh, 
relatively moral in his outlook. Was he a severe type or was he more gregarious? He was a, a, a dude. He liked, you know, there's a, what do you mean by that? an incident uh, and it's, it's, it was portrayed in a movie, uh, the Amistad Affair, where we took a slave ship that had been taken over by the slaves and they didn't know how to get back to Africa. And we took it off Long Island. And, uh, of course, had the slaves executed, right? Uh, eventually, but you know, having 150, 160 Africans show up on a Spanish vessel, uh, rose up to the president level and, uh, Van Buren would travel on a train but he, he, he'd carry hats, you know, and he had a half a car devoted to his hat collection. Okay. No, he's a very, very vain. He had big mutton chop sideburns. But was he's, he considered good looking by the time? They like portly, prosperous looking types. I mean, he, he kind of looked like John Bull. If you ever see the picture of John Bull, the uh, British version of Was Bull he Sam. tall? No. But he's Dutch. Oh, Dutch back then was short. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, he's, 150 years ago, that's for sure. Yeah, so, uh, but, but, you know, he was, he was prosperous looking, people would have found him attractive. And was he from the early Dutch settlers of New York? Yes. Okay. So, but he, he also supported the idea of manufacturing. New York, Hudson Valley, uh, looking, looking to improve Jackson's standing in New England, and, and a visionary idea that, as we expand west, we can become a great manufacturing country. You know, I mean, uh, I know that Lincoln thought that we would get up to 200 million people. He thought by 1900. Wow. Way off. Uh, Why did he think that? He just had bad statistics, I guess. Uh, well, the birth rate they had back then. <laughs> but, uh, you know, Van Buren definitely saw the United States population, you know, 60, 70 million, and thought they needed manufacturing. You know, they needed the jobs, they needed the improvements. And plus he hated having the British constantly have that power over us, that they controlled everything. We got glass, nails, shoes, leather. Very annoying, sure. So um, he was... He and was Jackson a, could sympathize with that view. And, and Jackson, Jackson went with that. So he said, you know, this is a pretty cheap way for the government to get revenues. And the Southerners termed it the tariff of abominations. So just to be clear, they they wanted to take a tax on all imported goods in order to produce higher um, manufacturing with domestic manufacturing. Well, they didn't take the money and reinvest it into the no, but it would create a uh, but, space but, for but domestic part, manufacturing. Well, they wanted it for government revenue, right? But if you're going to be, if you have to pay Europeans more, could pay. if you're going to pay more for the nails, that means that the guy that's producing nails here, he can that's do it that's cheaper. a common argument made in favor of the protective tariff. No, but that was the idea of it. We don't know if that's what they thought back then, or if that was just uh, a gloss that we put on it. But what what, uh, what was but, the tax but, on but imported people, goods? Right, but people like people like Hamilton did advance that argument earlier on. So that was part of the orthodoxy that if we have high tariffs 
and that became very popular later, like in the late 19th century. Progressives or not? But uh, no, conservatives. Now, did but uh, I don't know that, that that Martin Van Buren would have advanced that as an argument. And what was ja- and Jackson was firmly on the side, or just kind of willy nilly about Jackson it? was firm about everything. I mean, you know, Jackson was never wishy washy. So. Uh, they shepherded it through the Congress. They passed it. Did it pass easily? Uh, it passed based on sectional votes. It passed. New England liked it. The Midwest liked it. The West liked it. The South opposed it. And in South Carolina, Calhoun's home state, they opposed it to the extent that they said, okay, you can have that. This is coming from the vice president. This is like Mike Pence's Indiana right, right, going wild. Right. But... South Carolina is not going to pay it, and South Carolina is 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 going to do something to keep the goods cheap and not. Now they're saying not going to pay it because it was the states that were collecting. No, the they taxes. collected it in New York at the Customs House. So why wouldn't? What but South, but Carolina, South Carolina passed this bill to uh, go around it. To go around it. Okay. okay? Um, and it, it wasn't repeal. I just had the, the word on the tip of my tongue. Uh, and it just slipped out of my head. Um, Circumvent? No. Appeal? No, it was, uh, I mean, like it never happened. I mean, it, it, Renege? like it was an annulment of, of the bill, but that's, that's not the precise word. It just, it just slipped out of my mind. Um, nullification. Okay. Nullification. South Carolina nullified the law. Okay. And Jackson said, this is a national law passed by the national legislature. And no state <laughs> is nullifying any law that my administration is. You don't want to mess with Jackson. And he said that he would go to South Carolina and he would hang, he would personally hang <laughs> any uh, South Carolinian wow. advocating nullification. You're kidding. No, that's what he said. And, you know, he was, he had an army ready to go, you know. Uh, and what, was Calhoun out, out by this? Well, time? Calhoun wasn't out until the end of his term. But Calhoun but can't stand the White House or near the White House with him when he's talking like Calhoun that. is out of any favor with the administration. Okay, but Jackson and doesn't. And was, was replaced by Van Buren. But Van Buren was acting VP or he no, was Calhoun VP? No, Calhoun was still the VP. But it wasn't until the next election in 1832 that they dumped Calhoun. Because? Because Calhoun was the like legally that? elected vice president. And they, they didn't do things like that? Well, you don't, have, you don't have a way of removing officers. Oh, a VP. Or, but a cabinet member, he could have removed right, them. Okay, right. I see. Okay. So, but Calhoun and, and Jackson had bad blood over this? They had really bad blood over this. I mean... Uh, and, and Oh, uh, is this the line that Jason says where he, he's mad he didn't shoot uh, Calhoun? No, Clay was the one he was mad he didn't shoot. Okay. He had, he, he had people who had issues with him. Okay. So, um, and, and again, this is this is one of these things and, and did this persisted in the memory. Popular lore. No, uh, not so much popular, well, popular lore about hanging the nullifiers. But the the feud with Calhoun, I mean, that was something that split the Democrats. Now, do you... Oh, it did. Yeah. Because they were both Democrats. Yeah. And this is where the Southern Democrat really developed. So this, this, is, later. this is where we're starting to see the rift 
between the National Democratic Party and the Southern Democracy. Interesting. Now, did South Carolina come into obviously conform to the law? I'm trying to think of whether Jackson actually led the expedition down there, but they did come into compliance. Okay. Now, you we can go over to the bank veto, but before we do that, I think there was a, uh, something that you wanted to tell a little anecdote about Jackson's trip to the Northeast. So, so um, when when after all these contretemps, when Jackson fired his cabinet established a spoil system, uh, assured the He had a lot of people trying to basically, de- like, come for him. Come after him, is it? Come for him in the sense that they were trying to cut him down to size. Oh, yeah. Jackson had enemies. Jackson had enemies. But they were more doing of cutting up, trying to undercut his authority than they were trying to go toe-to-toe. Well, Jackson was seen as a very strong executive and almost a monarchical or regal figure. So he King had, Mob. Well, it's actually, it went from King Mob to King Andrew. But they did call him King Mob. At the beginning. But it shifted <laughs> to King Andrew okay. after he started doing these forceful things. And Was King Mob a, a, ne- a negative connotation? Yes. And King Andrew also or no? Yes, and it actually, the uh, Federalist Party had collapsed. Uh, That was Adams' party. That was John Adams' party, not John Q. Okay. John Q was a Democrat-Republican. Democrat-Republican? Yeah. Okay. All right. Sometime either in late in Madison's term or early in Monroe's term. So we're talking Virginia dynasty. Three, four terms before Jackson, the Virginia dynasty. The Federalist Party collapsed. And so there was no opposition party. There was just the Democratic Republicans. So that's Jefferson's party. That's Jefferson's party. So But that party was to collapse too. The the nullification debate, the tariff debate, split the Democratic Republicans into a faction that followed Jackson and upheld Jackson, who became the modern-day Democrats through a lot of evolutions. Because Jackson probably wouldn't be viewed very well in today's Democratic Party. Oh, all that stuff he's saying constantly. Uh, but the opposition party became the Whig party, who was were, really around in Britain, who, which was a party in Britain which believed in constitutional monarchy. Oh, okay. So the Whigs in America believed in limiting the executive power of the presidency. They still had the national plan. It was still a federal government, but in the Whig conception, I think the power in the government rested more in the Congress. And in Jackson's, there was a stronger executive. And in Jackson's, there was much more in the strong executive. But still decentralized part, because he still believed in seeing states' rights, although he wouldn't allow nullification. Did Jackson... So he wanted a strong leader, but he also wanted government to be diffused. Right. Local, almost. Right. Did Jackson have admirers among the presidents later on? I know we're not at his legacy. Um, Yes. Who were the... Presidents in mind. Um, all the Democrats. FDR? Who, who, you know, FDR, definitely. I mean, he saw Jackson as one of his. Uh, Wilson. 
Okay. Um, Cleveland. Okay. And then, of course, Van Buren, who was his vice president, and Pierce and Polk. Polk was called Young History. Oh, Hickory, you right, know, yeah, Hickory from our, our sure. Polk uh, episode. Sure, and Polk was one of his proteges. Tell the story about when he goes up to so, the So after these divisive things, uh, after firing uh, John C. Calhoun, bringing in Martin Van Buren as the new vice president, they had to run for re-election. So the election of 1832 came up. And, and it is... Fairly common in American history, president didn't mess up in the first term, gets a vote of confidence and, and, and wins re-election fairly, uh, fairly handily. And, of course, Jackson was unpopular in the Northeast. And he figured, you know, as the newly re-elected president, I should go up to the Northeast and, and mend some fences. So this is 32. Uh, well, this would be probably more like 33 after the election, oh. after the winter, okay. early 1833. So uh, Jackson went up north and uh, wanted to appear in New York City and in Boston and appear at Columbia, Harvard, so on like that. Okay. And when he got to Harvard, which even back then was seen, as the pinnacle of American higher education. And back then they taught in Greek, in classical Greek. They taught in classical Greek? Yeah, a lot of of the courses were taught in classical Greek. And if you didn't have a Greek and Latin background, so-called classical background, you weren't considered cultured and educated. Adams would have done well. Adams Adams was right, right there for this kind of stuff. So uh, Jackson got to Cambridge, and they had a big dinner for him, and people got up and made these long speeches. Cambridge. Oh, Massachusetts. Yeah, uh, where Harvard is. And a uh, number of them spoke in Latin or used long Latin passages or long Were French they passages. receiving him warmly or kind of suspiciously? A little suspiciously. I mean, they viewed him as kind of a rube, as kind of a hick, and... An educated man. Remember, he was unlettered. Right. You know, so there was a little mistrust. But they, they kind of admired his native intelligence. So uh, when it came turn for Jackson to speak, he got up and he looked around the room. And he said, uh, Conditio sine qua non e pluribus unum. And conditio sine qua non means uh, a condition before anything else Mm. or a condition without nothing. Mm. In other words, before anything else. E pluribus unum, from many the one, Mm. which is the motto of the United States. And after uttering that uh, rather catchy phrase, took his bows and sat down. Mm. So uh, he was roundly applauded. You know, by then it was fairly late and... They all figured, okay, you know, speeches are over. You know, now we can get down to the serious drinking. And yeah. So, and now that we know our president speaks yeah. Greek, we're good to go. <laughs> Latin. Latin, I mean, sure. And, uh, Thanks. you know, of course, then, you know, Jackson showed he was clever. Uh, he didn't show airs. Yeah. And he had the time to sit and talk to people demonstrate was it a unifying moment for him it was and it was it was a it was a unifying moment for the country 
And it was a very high moment for Jackson. I mean, you know, this this was a, a point where he gained esteem with the uh, cultured, educated uh, classes, and it, it you know it was just a, just a good moment for him. All right. So going on. A- so we go from that high note mm. to uh, Jackson going back to Washington and deciding that he didn't like that there was a national bank. Now, before, all right, and I want to get into the National Bank, but we might have to move to the next episode. I want to ask a question about Jackson's own sense of confidence and um, how he how he felt about the job. And, and you finish with that, and then we'll go into the bank and the – how long do you think we'll spend on the bank? Bank, uh, bank might be long. Okay, so we'll go to the bank next episode. What what would you say about Jackson um, as far as his – I mean, part of what made the Harvard speech and stuff special was because he wasn't known for that. He was known for being a strong executive. So for him going down to South Carolina and saying, I'm going to hang anybody that's a nullifier, yeah, I mean, that's tough. Yeah, that's, 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 that's also – Jack. that's right. right in his mold. He's been doing that's that. Yeah. yeah, he's been doing that. And it's, um, it's impressive, but it's not that people are... Um, it's brutish. It's within his wheelhouse, let's say. Yes. So I understand that at this point in time, Jackson is kind of remaking the mold of the presidency right. in his own image in a way. Right. But how comfortable or confident was he in his own skills, in his own abilities, in his ability to direct the country. And did he feel out of place, do you think, when he got to Washington? And did he feel confident about his capabilities to do the job? And if he didn't right away, when did he start feeling more comfortable? So one of the good things of his speech at Harvard was that it showed the extent of respect that Jackson had for the educated classes. You know, he didn't try and make a long speech uh, extolling his accomplishments, Uh trying to show that even though I'm not well-educated, I'm still really smart. Right. He talked to them in their own terms, gave them his basic message of national unity, of diversity, e pluribus, from many, one, national purpose. And, you know, showed that he respected their accomplishments. So that was, that was critically important. Which is impressive, that, even, that, especially from any president, but coming from that, someone like Jackson. Is right. Particularly in addition to his domineering side, he had this other side where he could pull people to him. I mean, he was, he was magnetic as well as being dominant. Uh, so, so what about his that. own compat- What about so his own as, self-assessment? As far as his, his own self-assessment, um, President George H. W. Bush died Recently. earlier this week. Yeah, um, and one of the, the uh, in fact, his eulogist John Meacham uh, was talking about his impression of George H. W. Bush's diaries. And he said that, you know, as he was reading, and this is a, this is a very prominent American historian, uh, as he was reading through Bush's diaries, he realized Bush had a lot of 
uh, a lot of moments where he really struggled with the decision, but he never doubted that he should be the one making the decision. Mm. And I think that was the way Jackson approached the office. You know, he really, really worked hard to devise a good way of solving the problems. And he may have had doubts about whether his solution was the optimal thing, but he never doubted that he should be the one making those decisions. But he was also somebody with a more revolutionary vision of the world than George H.W. Bush. I mean, oh, George H.W. Oh, Bush's oh, yeah. revolu- vision oh, yeah. of the world is pretty staid. But, but you know, you asked the question sure, about Jackson's his personal assessment. Of, of his so. personal assessment. And, and whatever doubts he had about the results, about how he did things, about what he could do, he never doubted Andy Jackson should be there making the final decision. And he also didn't think he was an escape on his innate talent. He probably worked pretty hard at most things. Oh, he worked, he worked at everything, yeah. I mean, he was at his desk, and he was, uh, he was hard at it. All right. And he confronted people personally. Well, he's not one to back down from a challenge. Right. All right, so let's end there. We'll go to the banking veto next, and then we'll move into the Indian crisis. After that, we'll go on to his legacy, and that should be it for Andrew Jackson. So thanks again for listening. Uh, This is Philip. And Robert. And we're signing off.